we're going to talk about perfectionism. And we're not going to talk about everything that, uh, that we could with regard to perfectionism. What I'm really particularly concerned with in this, which is a faith development combo, is the idea of perfectionism and how it connects to spiritual ideas, particularly in evangelical Christianity. I am an evangelical Christian minister. Uh, that doesn't mean that I expect that all of you come from that perspective. But I think part of faith development means at least maybe you better understand um, either your own faith, if you're from that evangelical Christian tradition, or the faith of a lot of people, um, at least at this school and in, you know, in this world. So uh, I think that, that perfectionism, there's a lot of connections to perfectionism and spirituality and a lot of very unhelpful ways that what is, what is really more perfectionism um, than healthy kind of ideas of spirituality. The, 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 in a lot, of, a lot of settings in Christian circles, evangelical Christian circles, perfectionism gets spiritualized into things where, you know, for instance, people have trouble making decisions because they're perfectionists, and rather than deal with that, rather than have to face the reality of living in an uncertain world that's outside of our control, uh, instead we try to do things like say that we're waiting on God, uh, which may actually be more about sort of the, the perfectionist's inability to make decisions than it is really about spirituality. So I do think that, um, that, that perfectionism, while it's not just a spiritual issue, I do think that there are often spiritual roots at what's going on. So that's kind of the perspective I'm going to be talking about. Now first, um, a little bit on what perfectionism is. Um, it really is a rampant issue. I, I know I, the first time I heard a professor of mine at seminary, Dr. Richard Winter, who incidentally wrote an, a great book on this. If you want to explore this issue more, it's called Perfecting Ourselves to Death. Dr. Richard Winter, The Pursuit of Excellence and the Perils of Perfectionism. Uh, I, I really appreciate Dr. Dr. Winter because um, he's both worked as a clinical psychologist, um, but he also has been a pastor, and he also was one of the directors of Labrie. If you've ever heard of the ministry of Francis Schaeffer, and Labrie, he helped direct the Labrie in England. So he has a, a wide range of perspectives that he brings to this issue. And uh, w- when I heard him give this talk, I remember thinking, well, I'm not, I'm not really a perfectionist. I don't, you know, I, I don't seem you know, very anal about keeping everything neat. If you saw my room or you saw my car, you would definitely not conclude that I was a perfectionist um, because both of them were just out of control you know, disaster areas. And yet, as he began to talk about different types of perfectionism, uh, and particularly, maybe y'all, yeah, I think people are trying to get in the door there. Yeah. If, um, you know, he talked about the idea of a defeated perfectionist. And I was like, oh, really? I've never heard of a defeated, a defeated perfectionist is somebody who basically derives their, sen- their self-worth from their performance, how well they're doing. It's just that they don't think they can, they can really do it perfectly, so they say, why bother? If you can't do it perfectly, why bother? And so they may not even look like perfectionists, and yet perfectionism is still at the heart of a lot of the way they think about themselves and about the world. Um, Dr. David Siemens, who uh, is a Christian psychologist guy, he says that perfectionism is the most disturbing and most common emotional problem among evangelical Christians. That's a pretty strong statement. The most common and the most disturbing emotional problem among evangelical Christians. And I think, in a lot of ways, in my time here at Belmont, I've been here 14 years, it's always been an issue, for instance, for athletes and musicians, right? There, you even need to have a certain degree of perfectionism and concern for high standards and doing jobs well to really excel in those fields. But I think the longer I've been here, the more I've seen Belmont get better and better as far as academics, 
the kinds of students that you all are are really a lot different than uh, the students that were here 10 years ago as far as academic ability, as far as your uh, drivenness and perfectionistic tendencies. Um, it, it really is a fascinating thing. I don't know if, if well, you, you know, it, it may be interesting to think about what Belmont's like five or six years from now. I, I'm sort of in that weird place of the college that I went to, I could never get in now. I could never get in now. And that'll probably be true for you, the way your, your school continuing on this trajectory. But what it means is that perfectionism and this sort of kind of perfectionist driven student is much more the, the nature of students here at Belmont. Um, what always was true about Vanderbilt students, for instance, um, is becoming more true of students all over the place. They, that was, they were kind of the subset 10 or 15 years ago, uh, the minority. But now really, you know, all you all probably have some of this. And I'm going to maybe talk about some of the symptoms that can help you understand whether you might actually be a perfectionist. Um, one of the first symptoms is this, all or nothing type thinking. All or nothing type thinking. Well, if, if you get messages or you're, you're always telling yourself things like, I must do everything just right or not bother, not do it at all, then, um, then you might be a perfectionist. Some people, uh, different people that write on this, talk about driven perfectionists and defeated perfectionists. So driven perfectionists are those who are still under the illusion that if they just work a little harder, if they just plan a little better, if they just control a few more factors, that they really can pull it off and they really can accomplish these high goals that they set for themselves. Defeated perfectionists are those that basically are still deriving their sense of self-worth from how well they do things. They just feel like a failure most of the time. So they may not seem like they've got it all together, but they're still very oriented towards how well they do things. So all or nothing type thinking. And what happens a lot of times is people oscillate back and forth between being driven and feeling like I can do this if I just try harder um, or not, uh, then giving up and being defeated. I know um, I tell people sometimes the way they did final exams at Covenant Theological Seminary where I attended would drive a perfectionist absolutely insane because what they would do is rather than having a set time and a set hour for you to take your finals, we had a finals week and you basically would study until you felt ready to take your final and then you would go down to this central place and you would say, I'm ready to take the final for ancient medieval church history and then you would take it. The problem for a perfectionist is when do you feel like you've really studied enough? You could always study just a little bit more. Perfectionists have difficulty living in the tension that is the reality. We are finite people and we live in a world that is not within our control, particularly when you look at the area of relationships. Relationships are not within your control. Other people do things that are outside of your control. Perfectionists really have a difficult time with that and may you know, if they can't feel that they can really get what they want and be perfectly, you know, satisfied with no surprises, they may actually even pull away from a relationship. So there's all or nothing type thinking, which even can oscillate between drivenness and defeat. The second, uh, and I've already alluded to this already, is an intolerance of ambiguity. Um, perfectionists have a real problem living in the tension or in the balance with the inevitable uncertainties of life. Perfectionism at its heart is an attempt to control your world. You know, but one of the things that's, that's helpful to remember, I guess if you're a Christian, or even if you're not a Christian, this is what the Bible teaches about the world. It's a frustrating place. Now, I hope that's not news to you. <laughs> I hope that's not news to you. But for a lot of Christians, I think they, they don't really seem to factor that into their thinking a lot of times. They seem to have this idea that if I know Jesus, and if I have enough faith, and if I do the right things, 
that I can get the kind of predictable life that I want. We tend to think that, uh, I'm talking about evangelical Christians, tend to think that if we just do the right things, if we pray enough, if we are faithful enough, if we read the Bible and share our faith or all the little things that evangelical Christians are supposed to do, if we just do those things, then we can guarantee a life of blessedness. And of course, we define blessedness as getting the kind of life that we want. But the Bible says something very different. For instance, the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes, it's one of those books that I, I don't know people read too often. The King James translation starts with the book of Ecclesiastes this way. Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. The NIV translation, New International Version, says meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. But neither one of those are actually very good translations. The, the key word in the book of Ecclesiastes is the Hebrew word hevel. And hevel is the word for vapor or breath. And the way it's used in Ecclesiastes, it really should be translated frustrating. In other words, the book of Ecclesiastes is not teaching that life is meaningless. It's not a book of existentialism, which actually comes much later, philosophically, historically speaking. It's a book about how life is frustrating. After the fall, life is frustrating. After sin is entered the world, life is full of frustration. Um, there, there's a guy named um, Dr. Wright who wrote an interesting article on the interpretation of uh, Ecclesiastes a few years ago. And he said, you know, the, the way to think of Ecclesiastes is life has lost the key to itself. And yet, what's interesting, if you go into chapter 3 of Ecclesiastes, there's this verse, that God has set eternity in the hearts of all men. Gender neutral term there, all men and women. He set eternity in our hearts. In other words, he's given us a longing to know that there's more to this life. We have longings that can never be satisfied by this world, yet they're frustrated. Life is about frustration, and the book of Ecclesiastes talks about how man goes in search of various schemes, various schemes to try to create a world in which we can eliminate the frustration. And so people pour their, lives, pour their, their life and their energy into various things. Maybe it's being a, being a people pleaser, getting people to like me, or maybe it's achieving a high degree of academic success so that I can guarantee a, a future. Uh, for myself. Maybe it is, um, you know, developing your gifts to such a level that you would receive the kind of accolade from your, from your peers that you hope for. There's all kinds of schemes that we pursue to try to eliminate the frustration of life, but we can't do it. Life is frustrating. It's interesting that the book of Ecclesiastes encourages us, even in the midst of the frustration, we, we can't back down and we can't give up. As a matter of fact, there's a place where Ecclesiastes says, take joy in your spouse and in your work. All of these frustrating days of life under the sun. That's a hard thing for Christians, I think, a lot of Christians to deal with. We don't, we don't like that. We, we, we don't like the idea that even though life is frustrating, we're still called to take joy and to find joy in these sorts of things. And yet that is the, the wisdom the Bible gives us. So an intolerance of ambiguity. The third is a tyranny of the shoulds and the oughts in life. So a pastor friend of mine likes to say we should all over ourselves all the time, <laughs> right? We're always telling ourselves I should do this, I should do that, I shouldn't do that, I can do this. Um, there's a guy, uh, Gibson, in an article about Christian perfectionism or perfectionism in, among Christians, says this, that what we, when we say these sorts of things, what we're basically implying is, I can, I can, we believe this, I can, by diligent enough effort and alertness, 
absolutely guarantee that I will never make any mistake in anything I ever undertake. Now, we might not actually say it that way, but whenever things go wrong, we say, oh, I should have done that, or I shouldn't have done that, or we're always trying to tweak, we're always trying to figure it out so that the next time we won't have things turn out poorly. And there's uh, a perfectionist are just driven crazy by that kind of thing. Perfectionists are the kind of people that before they call somebody on a phone, uh, you know, like to ask somebody out for a date, for instance, they're going to plan out every possible response and then think through, okay, then what will I do? Like a chess match where you're thinking it out 10 or 12 moves ahead of time. That's perfectionism. And it's very difficult to live life that way. After a while, you realize that you just can't foresee the possibilities that real human interactions are going to take. And at that point, you either have to live with the roller coaster that is life, or you will back away from relationships and pour all your energy into things that you feel you can control. Um, a, third, a fourth area, procrastination. Anybody know about procrastination? How many seniors here are trying to desperately finish their uh, convo credit? And that's why I know at this point in the semester, I can always guarantee a good turnout for a faith development convo, no matter what we talk about, right? Because you've put it all off, right? Procrastinate. What's procrastination? Now, this isn't the only thing behind procrastination, but often one of the driving issues behind procrastination, as well as indecision, is just this, this inability to make decisions because you might be cutting off options. One of the mottos, I guess, of, of our culture, and particularly among younger folks, is I stay safe by staying free. That once I commit myself to something, to some course of action, I have automatically cut off other possibilities. And those other possibilities might be really, I, I might be missing out on something. We have this sense that there are all of these wonderful experiences to be had, and I better not cut myself off from the possibility of experiencing them. You see this in those, those silly MasterCard commercials, right? Which are all about being able to have the coolest experiences imaginable, you know? And, of course, the greatest experiences are always going to be spontaneous, and so you're going to need a credit card. You know, <laughs> heaven forbid that you could actually plan for, you know, that trip to the ballpark where you take your kid or, you know, save up for it. No, you know, you've got, you've got to be spontaneous, so you need a credit card. But the underlying message... The subtext under that is life is about having the best experiences you can have. And the fact is, if you choose to go here, you're not going here. And you may miss out on what's going on down here. That's reality. And for a lot of people, they don't like that. And they protest that. And the way they protest it by saying, well, I'm not going to do either one of those. I'm just going to kind of wait. And then, of course, in spiritual settings or in Christian circles, often this gets spiritualized. It gets spiritualized into saying things like, I'm waiting on the Lord. But if you're here for my convo on Friday where I talked about um, knowing God's will, the, the Bible, when it uses that phrase, waiting on the Lord, never, never, I know this is a strong statement, but you can, you can read and you'll find it, never uses the phrase waiting on God uh, in the sense that you're waiting for God to tell you what to do. It only ever uses that phrase in terms of waiting for God to deliver you. When, you feel, when you're in a trial or you're in a testing time um, and you're asking God to deliver you, um, the waiting on God is waiting for his deliverance. It's not waiting for him to tell you what college to go to. Never. But I know in Christian circles we use it that way, and I think in a lot of ways we're just spiritualizing perfectionism rather than dealing with our refusal to live in the world that God has made. We're not wanting to live in touch with reality. Um, Dr. Richard Winter puts it this way. He talks about this kind of spiritualizing perfectionism. He says, it's easier to say we're waiting on the Lord than to complete the hard work of making a decision 
that has costs as well as benefits. Our obsessive tendencies shrink from commitments. Our religious language often offers a sacred-sounding smokescreen for cowardice. In order to get on with life, we must take a stand, letting go of some of the alternatives available to us. Our obsessive desire to be master of our fate insists on keeping all options open lest we make a mistake. In this process, we sacrifice joy on the altar of control. See, here's the interesting thing. We, we so much want control. And for some of us, we really can, can actually arrange our lives in such a way that we do actually have a pretty high degree of control. But what we always sacrifice, the dark side to actually pursuing control as your chief goal in life, is that if it's successful, your life will be really boring. It, it's, no, it's no coincidence that in a culture like ours, which says that safety and control, which are very closely linked, are the highest goals for you to pursue, that there's such a huge problem with boredom and people that are just kind of feeling like there's, there's no adventure to life. It's because we've squeezed everything out of our life that could possibly throw us, you know, for a loop. And so then we wonder, you know, how to get, how to get sort of the, the, the life and the risk, the adventure back into life. When, when control is your idol, if it's successful, your life will be marked by boredom. If it's not successful, if you're living for control but you can't get it, then your life will be marked by anxiety and worry and all those sorts of things. So often procrastination and indecision um, mask perfectionism. Another one, another sign of perfectionism is depression. Now, I do not mean to say that all depression is linked to perfectionism by no means. I believe that there are all kinds of causes of depression, including um, physiological issues, right? I believe that. I don't want to spiritualize that away. But one of the things that can underlie some depressions is an inability to reach your goal. And if your goal is to have a life that's controllable and a life where you can anticipate every possibility. In short, if you're a perfectionist whose goal is perfection, of course you'll be depressed, <laughs> unless you're completely out of touch with reality. Depression, you, you will not be able to reach your goals of being as perfect as you want. And so depression often um, is linked to perfectionism. Another one is a fear of deep intimacy in relationships. I've mentioned this a little bit. Um, if, if your goal is control, relationships are really scary. Unless, unless you're really convinced that you're so good at influencing people or manipulating people that you can have relationships and still be a perfectionist. Now, most people actually who are perfectionists fear relationships because they fear somebody actually finding out how deeply flawed they really are. So perfectionists often may actually have lots of friends but they tend to fear deep, intimate relationships because if they actually get close to somebody, their flaws will be exposed and they can't handle that. Um, f finally, is a dependence on rituals. And again, this gets spiritualized, but it's not just you know, spiritual people that depends on rituals and rules. You can see this with sort of an extreme kind of perfectionism that gets into obsessive personality. But all perfectionists tend to have certain ways they figured out of doing things, and they like to keep doing things in that way. 
they tend to depend on rules and rituals. And of course, evangelical Christianity has lots of rules and rituals that you can feel good about obeying and trying to perform. And again, it often, what is really perfectionism rather than faith driving your obedience to these rules and rituals, in Christianity, it gets really kind of twisted sometimes there. So those are some of the common symptoms of perfectionism. Anybody got a thought or a question, clarification about any of those before I talk some about the roots or the types and then the roots? No, I'll, keep, I'll press on then. Types of perfectionists. Um, we can do this pretty quick, but here they are. First is a performance perfectionist. This, this is a person whose sense of value is highly dependent on how they perform. Often it's associated with people who are into sports or music, but it really can be true of anybody who feels that they excel in a certain field. So performance perfectionists base their self-worth on how well they excel. And of course, this is what's, what's um, so difficult about dealing with this kind of perfectionism. The Bible says in the book of Proverbs that flattery is a snare. Flattery is a snare. It's like a net. That, that captures you. In other words, we live in a culture that is fueled by flattery. People are always telling you how good you are at this or that. Um, I've always found it fascinating that sometimes the most talented people, the most talented students that I've ever worked with tend to be the most insecure because their whole life they've been told this is why you matter because you're good at this. And there's both at, at one level they enjoy that and they feed on that but at another level, it's completely trapped them. So they feel like life is a continual aptitude test. You know, every opportunity um, to perform or to, to sort of show what I'm good at is also an opportunity to fail. And then to really wonder, you know, do I matter? And why do I matter? So, you know, this kind of perfectionism, it's the kind of person that can never finish a song. <laughs> and I always like to tell people, I was like, you've got to write a lot of bad songs before you write a good one. But, you know, perfectionists have trouble finishing any of them because you're always wanting to tweak it. You're always wanting to change it. You can always be a little better. I think of Donald Fagan, one of the, guy, one of the founding guys in Steely Dan. You guys probably don't know Steely Dan. But I'm going to say Steely Dan was an awesome band. But these guys, talk about obsession. Donald Fagan on his album The Nightfly, which would, did win the Grammy for Record of the Year, um, yet still he spent 365 days now, over the course of like four or five years when they went back and totaled up how many hours they'd spent working on that record, 365 you know, full days that they'd spent working on that record. Donald Fagan in an interview said that he wanted to make the record where he would have no regrets. He wanted to make a record where he could listen to it after the fact and listen to it and say, I wouldn't change a single thing about it. Man, that'll drive you insane. And that was before Pro Tools, right? <laughs> I mean, these guys literally invented sort of this, this digital recording drum machine thing they called the Roger, uh, no, the Wendell, they called the Wendell. Roger Nichols helped make it. They called it the Wendell, which basically you could take even the very best studio drummers like Jeff Beccaro and these guys, and you could slide the snare. You know what you can easily do on Pro Tools now? You couldn't do it very easily then. They basically had to invent the computer program to do that so that they would have no regrets, that absolutely everything would be perfect on that record. And it's an amazing record, but Wow. Um, perfectionism. So that's performance perfectionism. The life motto is, I achieve, therefore I am. And the price that you pay is a life of anxiety and worry. Or if you're a really good achiever, maybe the price you pay is boredom. The second is an appearance perfectionist. The appearance perfectionist has this motto, I am how I look. And while we might say, well, of course, that's shallow, who would think that? The fact is, tragically, 
A lot of people feel that way. And the, you know, one, of the, one of the things that fuels that, of course, are all kinds of media images about how you have to look. And it's not just girls, it's guys too. Um, the performance perfectionism is, is a really terrible um, slavery and bondage to be in. Particularly because, you know, how, how much that idea of what you need to look like changes. You're always having to wonder if you're sort of in style. I mean, I, sometimes I ask, ask myself, is it a sin to be out of style? Is it a sin to be out of style? Why does it feel like it? Why does it feel like it feels like sin? It feels like I'm dirty or unclean if I'm out of style, right? And, and then wait till you get married and then, then, you know, your sense of being in style is like part of your wife's sense of well-being is, how, you know, how you look. Don't go out of the house looking like that, you know, because it reflects on her. It's, it's so weird how this happens and how much money do we spend every season to sort of buy new clothes? I've got a closet full of clothes. Do I really need more? Why do I feel like I need more, right? So appearance perfectionism. Impression management. Dr. Winter says impression management dominates their lives. Uh, I like Chris Rock said one time, when you first meet me, you don't meet me. You meet my representative. I remember seeing an ad in Rolling Stone magazine a few years ago, just a two-page two spread, a guy on a skateboard, looked really cool, and just these words, clothes are your armor. Now, again, like, would you say that to somebody? No. But believe me, that message is a deep subtext that underlies our culture, and it's probably rooted itself in your heart more than you realize. So appearance perfectionism. Uh, third is an interpersonal perfectionist. These people have very set ideas about the way things should be done, and this makes relationships difficult, as you can imagine, because they tend to let people know that you're not doing things the way they should be done. They tend to be perfectionists about how everything should be done, and they want to make sure that everybody that they're in a relationship with conforms to that. If they have an outward focus, okay, th this kind of perfectionist can have either an outward or an inward focus. If you're an outward-focused interpersonal perfectionist, then you're very critical of others. If you have an inward focus, then you're very critical of yourself. And you probably will flee from relationships because they will just expose the flaws that you feel so overwhelmed by. Uh, fourth would be a moral perfectionist. A moral perfectionist, these are people that are concerned that they and all those around them should keep the rules perfectly. And uh, if you've ever been around evangelical Christians, you know that that type abounds. Um, even in the midst of a religion that says we're saved by grace, unfortunately. Fifth, an all-around perfectionist. Now this one is, well, this one will really kill you. Performance, appearance, morality, they all matter. They all matter a whole lot. And these are the people that are on their way to becoming obsessive compulsive or having obsessive personalities. It's not just one little area that they're perfectionistic about. They're perfectionistic about everything. And then finally, the defeated perfectionist. The defeated perfectionist has this motto, if I can't do it perfectly, why bother? And again, often they'll be marked by sloppiness, not by having everything together. Um, you know, like, like I have a friend of mine, I remember going into his office one time. He's a, he was a pastor. I worked on staff at a church with him for a while. And like, he literally would know if you moved one of the pencils on his desk, right? I mean, everything was perfectly in place. I had a friend who used to mess with him. He'd like go sneak into his office and would like move his pencil or even worse, they would take one of his books and pull it out just a little bit on his bookshelves because they were all like perfectly lined up, right? That's the typical perfectionist. You say, okay, that's a perfectionist. If you came to my office and you looked at my office, there are piles of paper everywhere. 
And I've just kind of given up on ever being able to sort them. And when I do try to sort them and put them in, you know, in categories, I'm always left with like a box that I don't know how to categorize these. And I can spend hours trying to figure out what category does this fit under. And sometimes I need to make double copies of it so I can put it in two different categories. Or, you know, that's a defeated perfectionist. You would look at my office compared to my friends, you'd say, well, he's the perfectionist, not you. But I am. It's just a different type, right? So what are some of the roots? Um, I'll do this quick as well because I want to get to some of the uh, ideas about the spiritual roots. But there really are, it does seem to be from the research that there are some people who are genetically more disposed to this. So that may be uh, a part of this. There are some cultures that seem more disposed to this. Um, all I can tell you is, is interesting. There are certain cultures, some traditional. Um, Dr. Winter in his book mentions, you know, Switzerland, if you've ever been to Switzerland. Um, or I, I remember actually being in Germany. I went on Germany on a trip for a couple of weeks. And after about a week of being there, it was just like everything works in Germany. Everything like works really well. Everything is manufactured and, you know, just a real high degree of precision. And, and it sort of even characterizes the whole culture, the whole country in a lot of ways. Same is true of Japan. If you've ever been to Japan, um, it's fascinating. I mean, again, things work really well. Um, I, I remember, you know, being in Tokyo for, for a couple of weeks one time, and it's like I couldn't find a trash can anywhere, and yet I never found any trash on the streets. It's like I had something to throw away. I, I didn't know. Like, I'm sure if you are from there, you know, like, how that works, but it was just fascinating, right? And I also remember what was really interesting is standing at a street corner, and the little sign said, don't walk, and there's probably like 20 or 30 people on each side of the street waiting for the, the light to change, and I remember because I'm an American, <laughs> like, I don't really care about rules, right? I just kind of stepped into the street and I heard gasps from the people around me, right? That's a different culture than our culture, right? So, you know, certain cultures have, have more tendencies toward this. I, I don't know why. I'm not going to propose to figure out why. Um, but the third is family influence. Perfectionist parents tend to um, produce perfectionist kids. Demanding critical parents can drive a kid toward perfectionism without a doubt. So that's often a, a, one of the factors that leads to this. I would also add that traumatic events, traumatic events can drive you towards perfectionism. Because again, if a, if a lot of what's behind perfectionism is a desire to produce a controllable world, people that, who have suffered something that showed them in a very grievous way that this world is not a safe place, uh, often are driven towards strategies where they can feel in control of a particular aspect uh, of their world. And actually, um, while a lot of people may, I think, think that eating disorders have strong connections with body image and those things, it also has a lot of connections with control and, and a lot of correlations between people who have suffered traumatic things, who feel like they can't control large aspects of their life or their story, but this little aspect I can try to control. So, you know, for what it's worth. What about some of the spiritual roots? Because as a Christian, I, I would argue that there are spiritual roots because the perspective that I take on this is that all human beings are made in the image of God, and that shapes us in a particular way. As well, all of us are shaped by the fact that sin and brokenness has entered into the world, and that shapes us in a particular way. So a biblical perspective in thinking about perfectionism would say this, and I offer this up for your consideration. If you're not a Christian, just hear me out. This is, this is the way I think a Christian should think about this. Um, perfectionism is often, is often a reaction to living in a fallen world. 
Because what the Bible says, the story that the Bible says, well, it's basically like Humpty Dumpty. I heard somebody put it this way one time. You know that Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall, right? Humpty Dumpty had a great wall, great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty back together again. And that, that really is, in essence, the story that the Bible pictures for us. That mankind was created good and morally upright. Mankind was created to bask in the approval of another. Mankind was made to walk in the cool of the day with God and to delight in each other. And yet something grievous has happened. That relationship has been ruptured, and it has far-reaching effects. And nobody can really fix it. It doesn't matter you know, who it is. All the king's horses, all the king's men, none of them can really put things back together again the way they were meant to. And so we live sort of with these, these tensions. We know that we were made for perfection. We know that we were made to hear, well done, my faithful servant. And yet the fact is, we're unable, we're unable to realize that on our own. We were made, you know, we, were no, we know that we were made for this. And one of the problems, I think, with a lot of kind of Christian teaching on perfectionism or even, um, you know, what happens sort of in like self-esteem seminars and whatnot that they subject my little kids to at school, is they basically, you know, tell, tell people, listen, you know, either find something that you're really good at so that you can kind of derive your sense of self-worth from that, or just try not to worry about it. But neither one of those messages really, really get to the hard issue. You know, it's fascinating to me now that I have little kids. And, and so, you know, you tend to, you, when you have little kids, you tend, your whole world tends to resolve, revolve around the kids and other parents that have kids the same age that are doing the same kinds of things. But it's fascinating how there's this pressure on parents to let your kids do all kinds of different things, hoping to find the one thing that they're going to be really good at so that they can feel good about themselves. It takes actually a lot of courage to say, we're not going down that road. I, I do not want my kids feeling that their sense of self-worth is based upon how good they are at this thing or that thing. Do I want them to enjoy um, their God-given abilities and be able to sort of bring them to fruition? Of course. But it's a very fine line to go from that to sort of encouraging your kids to think that this is what makes them matter. So that's, so that's one thing. You know, a lot of... A lot of what goes on in our culture is we're basically teaching kids from the time they're little that the reason you matter is because you perform well. I've seen it lately in my little girl. She's four and a half years old. And sometimes she, but to get our attention, she sort of acts silly and tries to act real cute. And part of me is like, oh, she's cute. But part of me is like really disturbed by that. You know, what is she trying, where has she gotten the message that to get the attention of her mother and her father, she has to perform? Yikes. I remember hearing a story about Susanna Wesley the mother of John and Charles Wesley, and how she used to make it a really uh, important point and, and real strategy that when she would talk to her children, she would never tell them, oh, John, oh, you're so smart. She would always say, oh, John, didn't God make you smart? And we try to do that with Amelia. She's a really pretty little girl, right? But again, flattery is a snare. I don't want her growing up always hearing how beautiful she is. Those are the girls I know from working with them as college students that are very insecure about their looks. Those are the girls that are freaked out to get married because, well, my husband still loved me when I gained 20 pounds, right? That, this, is, this is a really damaging thing. And so we've tried to always say to her, Amelia, who made you pretty? Now, you may think that's a minor thing, but it really, is, it really does matter. So that's, you know, that's, that's one thing I think here in thinking about you know, this basking in the approval of others. And the other thing is, you can't get that out of your heart. 
The idea that you were made to do well, you can't root that out of your heart. You can't just talk yourself out of that. Um, Dennis Gibson, again, uh, who writes this article on perfectionism in Christian, in Christian people, says there are two main themes to perfectionism. It's a hatred for the reality of being a limited person in an uncertain world, and it's a love for the illusion of control and the possibility of making life predictable. And as Christians, we understand that this desire for control or this demand for control in an uncertain world is really what the Bible calls sin and is the root of all, of all sin. But we also need to understand that at the heart of perfectionism is also a tr- an attempt at self-protection because we do live in a broken world, fallen world, full of other broken people who've hurt us in so many ways. And often perfectionism is connected to our story and to the pain that we've experienced. Uh, Dan Allender, who's a Christian counselor, says, if you follow the trail of pain in a person's life, it will often lead you to core commitments they've made to never put themselves in that vulnerable place again. And perfectionism is often connected to key aspects of your story in that way. Um, Again, I, I, I really resonate with what Chris Rock says, that when you first meet me, you don't meet me, you meet my representative. And I think so many of us are scared to death that if people actually knew us, they'd run screaming. <laughs> I, uh, I, really, I really think that's true. And the fact is, we live in a flawed world and we're deeply flawed people. So, is there anything that Christianity can say towards dealing with perfectionism? A couple things. First, dealing with perfectionism is a slow cure, it's not a quick fix. In other words, one of the, one of the one of the tragic things that I have to tell you today is you can't perform your way out of being a perfectionist. <laughs> you can't just come to a seminar and figure out, oh, here's what I need to do, and then start doing that. Because perfectionism will still attend your attempts at getting out of perfectionism. It's sort of this, this catch-22. It's a slow cure. It's a, it's a long, everyday... Eugene Peterson has a book. He's the guy that translated the message. He has a book called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. And that's actually the way I think we should think about the Christian life. It's a long obedience in the same direction. It's a long obedience in taking seriously what God says about reality, what God says about you, and what God says about who he is. And, and it's not like you're just going to go have a mountaintop experience and all of a sudden that's going to completely transform you. No, you're going to have to struggle to believe that this is true. Because if, if, if something works for you some of the time, it's the most difficult kind of behavior to give up. They know, the casinos know this, you know. They, they carefully work out the odds so that you win every once in a while. Because if some idol works for you every once in a while, you'll never let go of it. And sometimes you can get what you want. You can achieve a high degree of control. You can get the kinds of accolades that you feel you need. Sometimes. But of course, the more you live for that, the more you become trapped by that. And so the, 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 the fix is a slow cure, not a quick fix. Um, I, I would say, secondly, that false ideas about God need to be challenged. Uh, Martin Luther used to say that bad theology is a cruel taskmaster. The belief that God accepts you based on your performance is not at all in line with what the Bible teaches. And if you're a Christian and you believe that, you need to repent. <laughs> you need to repent. Because what you've done is you've substituted your own idea and said that you believe you and your idea more than you believe what God has said. And so if you're a Christian you believe that, you need to understand that you have misrepresented God, not only to yourself, 
but to everybody around you. And that's a very serious thing. Uh, third, false ideas about reality must be challenged. Why is it that so many Christians want to pretend or try to pretend that this world is, is sort of this nice place or that it can be turned into a safe, predictable place if you just have faith in God? And why is it that we so often give people that impression? We, we sort of lift up these kind of people to give testimonies at church who have their life all together, right? And we give the impression that if you're a Christian and you're a good Christian, that everything will work for you. And we conveniently leave books like Job out of the Bible. At least it doesn't seem to, at least it doesn't seem to factor in the way we think about what the normal Christian life should feel like. Or we don't, we don't really read the Psalms. There are more Psalms about where are you, God? Why, why are things going so poorly in my life than there are any other type? And yet most Christians don't expect that as the normal Christian life. And they think that they can perceive, you know, pursue different strategies that will produce the kind of life they want. Um, fourth, sometimes seeing the ridiculousness of our thoughts can help. Um, Isaiah 44, you might look at, is a place where the idol, people who worship idols, are exposed as not only being sinful, but as really being ridiculous. And, and the, the, Isaiah uses this image. He says, you know, people who worship idols, who put their trust in something besides God, are like these people, you know, that, that fashion these little gods out of a piece of wood. And half of the wood that they cut down this tree, half of the wood they use to, you know, roast their meat. And, and they say, ah, you know, I'm warm and I've eaten, eaten my food. Wonderful. And the rest of it we make into a little idol and we bow down to it and say, you're my God, save me. Now, you're supposed to look at that and say, that's ridiculous. But you know what? So are so many of the things that we put our own faith in. Whenever I put my faith in my ability to get everybody to like me, whenever I put my, my faith in my ability to perfectly execute um, whatever musical performance I think I need to do, it's really kind of ridiculous. And sometimes God in his mercy lets us fail so that we can see that. Um, fifth, the church. We do need a gospel community where flawed people are welcomed. And it really is tragic that for so many people, 12-step programs are that place more than the church. Nothing against 12-step programs. It just means that the church has not lived very well this, um, this reality of being a flawed community where uh, people say, well, you know, I, I belong here. I'm a flawed person among flawed people. Um, beggars who are telling other beggars where to find bread. Uh, that's deeply important if you actually are going to begin to get in touch with reality. And then six, the gospel. The gospel is the key. There are two, two sides to, to the gospel that are important to understand in this regard. The first is justification. What the Bible teaches about the good news of God that brings us back into relationship with him is that not only does what Jesus did offer forgiveness for our sins, but it actually offers us right standing in God's eyes. The Bible uses the term righteousness in this regard, and righteousness and forgiveness are not the same thing. I don't think very many Christians understand this. Righteousness and forgiveness are not the same thing. Forgiveness means that you're sort of brought back to zero. But what Jesus said was required is that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. From the moment you're born to the moment you die with no variation. And it's not enough for you just to be forgiven. You still need to do that. But what the Bible teaches about what Jesus did is he didn't just die for our inability to do that. He also lived, and when you become a Christian by faith, that what you get is credit for the life that Jesus lived. Now, that's a whole topic in itself, but the idea of righteousness, understand that you actually have perfect standing in God's sight by faith, is vital to understand. 
And then uh, also the doctrine of adoption. The idea that children of God, God looks at what they do and he accepts it because of the relationship, not because it's done perfectly. John Calvin had, a, had a, you know, has some classic statements on this, but sort of a, a modern version of the way he talks about this is to talk about you know, when you're a little kid and you do a piece of art and you bring it home, where does it go? It goes up on the refrigerator, right? Not because it's a great piece of art, but because of the relationship. And so it is with the way God looks at the things his children do. He accepts them, not because we do them perfectly, but because we're his children, and that's vital. And lastly, I'd say this. The practice of Sabbath rest should not be overlooked. Even though I know it's difficult to think about how could I incorporate Sabbath rest into my life as a college student, but one of the things the Bible teaches us about Sabbath is it's actually a tangible way to put a stake in the ground and say, I'm going to believe that my worth and my future and my life is based upon what God did, not upon my constant need to perform. And that's why in Christian understanding, the Sabbath goes from the last day of the week to the first day of the week. The Christian life begins with rest, resting at what God has done, and then out of that flows all the issues of life. It's vital for perfectionists to tangibly put God, um, sort of put their faith into practice in a way of saying, I'm going to start with rest, and I'm going to know that God is going to be able to help me, even if I don't work all the time like a crazy person.